This week's conversation is sponsored by MongoDB, the leading modern general-purpose database platform. Check out my recent interview with MongoDB CISO Lena Smart to learn all about the incredible things happening in the MongoDB security program. The company is also sponsoring the Diana Initiative, a virtual conference coming up on July 16th to the 17th, focused on women, diversity, and inclusion in cybersecurity. Register for the conference at dianainitiative.org and learn more about MongoDB at mongodb.com security. All right, welcome back to the Security Conversations podcast. My guest this week is Algerde Pipikaite. She is lead, lead for strategic initiatives at the Center for Cyber and Digital Trust at the World Economic Forum. That's quite a mouthful, Algerde. Welcome to the show. What does that mean? What do you do over there? Thank you, Ryan, for having me. It's always a pleasure to connect with you and, and also a pleasure to listen to your podcast. So I'm quite excited to be here. Um, yes, indeed, a mouthful, not only the name, but also the title and the center and the forum, but uh, definitely an exciting time to be in uh, cybersecurity. And I've been with the center for almost three years, actually, since its establishment in 2018. Um, the World Economic Forum has announced or announced in 2018, January, at the annual meeting in the ski resort Davos, Switzerland, where on a um, yearly basis, uh, global leaders used to come together before a corona crisis. Um, and in 2018, they actually said, you know, um, we believe the Center for Cybersecurity and Digital Trust is needed to provide a platform for public and private sector leaders to come together to tackle increasing and emerging cybersecurity challenges. And particularly focusing on the collaborative aspect of this. So the World Economic Forum um, has been uh, alive uh, for the last 50 plus years. And the main focus of the forum is actually to foster collaboration between private and public sector leaders. Right. And, in and, this, and the forum has been around establishing these conversations and driving these kinds of policy-based discussions among these groups for years. Exactly. The cybersecurity, uh, 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 not necessarily a spin-off, but the focus on cybersecurity is relatively new. And, 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 and that's, that's your work. Why? Why the center? Why was it the need to separate it as a, as a distinct thing for you guys to focus on? Definitely. So it's, it's, it's new as the center. It's not necessarily new as a topic for the World Economic Forum. Um, as you may know, uh, World Economic Forum publishes every year, as well in January, the Global Risk Report. Um, and we've been publishing for the last 15 years kind of the set of issues and emerging risks that citizens and public-private sector leaders should be aware of for the year to come. And actually, cybersecurity in different shape or form, cyber attacks, destruction, you know, theft of data, loss of data, cybercrime, in whatever shape or form, but the topic of cyber risk has been in the last 10 years in top five risks. So we've been seeing this tendency for, you know, a decade, if not mm -hmm. longer. They decided to establish a center actually to focus and, you know, allow a, a set of uh, staff members and partners to dedicate their time, resources and efforts to think and, and, and draft suggestions and frameworks on how to tackle 
and prepare for cyber challenges. And there are three ones that we are focusing on. One is how do we improve global cooperation? How do we strengthen global cooperation between countries, between countries and businesses, and between businesses themselves? Um, second one is how do we elevate cybersecurity from just a technical issue to a strategic level discussion? Um, and mostly when we think about applying new technologies, what, is, what will be the result of cybersecurity? What are the implications to cyber risk when taking these decisions? And finally, how will cyber risk will shape in the face of new and emerging technologies? 5G, quantum, um, cloud computing, AI, um, blockchain, and you know any emerging technology that you might think of, how will cybersecurity be shaped by them? So how can it be used in offensive manner? How should be applied in, in defensive manner? And how it will change the landscape of cyber threat? Fantastic stuff, because I think, I think you, you, you touched on some of the you know, prime issues and prime problems facing our attempts to get ahead of cybersecurity. And, and you just, let's start off with the first one. You talked about strengthening global cooperation and public-private sector partnership. How does that actually work when, when the adversary is part of that conversation as well? When nation states are now part of the you know, adversary defender relationship, how does this attempt to strengthen this cooperation happen within the blurring of these lines? Does that make sense? Totally makes sense. And actually, a, you know, a very good question. I think one uniting factor, especially when you think about the private sector, is that it doesn't matter where you are based, cyber crime and, and, and cyber criminal activities and hacking activities are, you know, do not know borders. Uh, the, the issue and the challenge of cyber criminal activities is global. The problem that responses in many cases, or in most cases actually, are local. And local, not even just on national level, sometimes it goes regional. Think about United States of America, you know, state level. And then think about just sector focused. Um, but we all know, you know, the way a bank is being hacked in uh, Bangladesh, for example, one day, most probably the next couple of weeks, the same or similar attacks will be tried on banks in Germany and Spain and Italy, United States, Canada, and et cetera. So, the more we cooperate, the stronger we can become as a community. And um, we focus at the center a lot in fostering co cooperation and collaboration between the law enforcement, different agencies, and the private sector. Mm -hmm. So that, first of all, there is a really good understanding um, between the you know, potential victims and agencies that could be helpful and the tools that they can provide to actually help respond to an incident or a cyber attack. Um, and, you know, the more we're going to be collaborative, the faster exchanging information, the stronger we're going to be as a community. And I believe at this point, um, cyber criminals are actually winning over that because they are using the tools and exchanging of information and you know hiring uh, cybercrime for hire much faster than we can 
when we think about maneuvering the different judicial systems, the different law environments, um, and then you, on top of that, include lawyers in the room um, that necessarily always uh, feel that using and sharing information is the smartest way to go in terms of liabilities. Um, so all these conversations are extremely important to have prior to an incident occurring. Because once you are in the middle of an incident, and you know, Ryan, that's you know, better than a lot of us, uh, there is no time to debate. You have to mm -hmm. be very certain with your decisions. You have to be very certain with the actions that need to be taken to actually be able to respond in a prompt manner. From your part of the World Economic Forum, do you get a sense that these conversations are getting easier? Do you get a sense that boardroom, like a boards of directors and, and executives are understanding the language of security? And I know I use that very kind of broadly, but for many, many years, practitioners have been saying to security leaders, hey, take this thing seriously. And it wasn't serious until the breaches started happening and you become mainstream news headlines. And I'm wondering how much of it is actually real where the conversations are actually happening or how much of it is just lip service being done by executives who take security seriously post-breach. Give me a sense from your, from your perch if the conversations are easier and getting easier and where are the gaps in this communication bit that you see that need, still needs to be addressed? Definitely. That's, that's a brilliant question. Um, and I think, you know, Last week's meeting between President Biden and President Putin that we just hosted in your here city in Geneva, in Geneva. exactly, yeah. exactly. It was a very hot day, believe me. Yeah. Super sunny and uh, hot, not only politically but also weather-wise. Um, you know, if you think about this, six months ago you would have never envisioned that cybersecurity issues would be the top of mind of two global leaders. I would um, never believe that I would see a G7 communicate with the word ransomware in there and exactly. supply chain security issues being such a front burner topic. But that's on the .gov side. And, we, and I want to get to that a little bit about some of this energy around the executive order and how the government can show some sort of leadership there. But, but even beyond there, how are these conversations actually taking place between practitioners and their own security leaders in terms of this is a real number one issue? versus yes. paying lip service to, yeah, we take security very seriously. So, so I think two things happened. One, the cyber attacks suddenly became not only issue of data loss, but they became um, an issue where, um, you know, translates to physical risk, to physical um, stagnation of operations. Okay, Downstream consequences are real for actual exactly. people. It's not just a bits and bytes digital thing anymore. Voila. So it's like it's not only anymore somewhere sitting in a digital domain realm, which is hypothetical. It's, you know, hitting our everyday lives. You're feeling Airlines it. Colonial pipeline got hit with a ransomware that wasn't that wasn't against any gas pipeline or anything. It just affected their payment systems. But the downstream effects had real exactly. world consequences up and down the East Coast when folks weren't getting gas. Exactly. Uh, at the pumps. And the same thing with water and so on. So it's real. Exactly. And it's right in your face. Okay. So I think the minute it touch like actual stability and safety of citizens, the dynamics in the boardroom and in executive decisions actually changes. 
because suddenly it's not this hypothetical risk that you are talking or that you know world economic forum is listing as one of the top 5 uh, risks but you see it in your face and and at the same time you know that the agencies respective agencies that are responsible for for these criminal activities and investigations they will be taking these things much more serious so suddenly you have you know a duo effect you have a very physical security and safety issue that you need to be responsible and you also know that the regulators uh, will be looking at this much more serious. And I think, you know, if we take United States as an example, the the, the kind of the domino effect of uh, all the White House publications and executive orders coming after the recent attacks just shows how Im- how much importance now the government will be putting on this. And but that doesn't mean that the cybersecurity community hasn't been talking about these issues for the last fifteen to ten years. We all were very much aware of what's happening, the risks and, and the threats that we are facing. I think the combination of the COVID-19 pandemic mm-hmm. and the recent attacks that translated into physical um, safety measures or the lack rather of them uh, or the risk to lose them um, really makes board members not necessarily very comfortable in even presuming that they have everything in order. So the attention that the cyber leaders in their organizations are getting is actually getting much broader. I think the budgets are getting much more friendly towards security. You think think resources for cybersecurity is becoming a lot more easier to get for practitioners, right? At least you know that the CISOs will not need to spend extra additional 20 hours in justifying why they are important. Like right. that that job is kind of done in the last 18 months by the global effect. So now they can actually focus on implementing um, training, um, running incidents, uh, making sure that they are prepared, planning, repeating, and learning. Um, and I think that is a massive facilitation that at least I can observe in the market in, you know, in communicating, for example, with our cyber leadership community, which unites around 100 plus um, cybersecurity leaders, mostly from private sector um, globally, but as well from public sector. Um, and you really notice that in, in, in our recent communication that their life is getting much easier And not only in the most mature organizations, you know, financial institutions um, or, or, or you know, technology companies that always had security in mind. Even they are stepping up their game. But also like the, the, the companies that not necessarily had cybersecurity in the forefront of their thought process and of their strategy now are actually putting it forward. Um, and I think we will see a transition very, very soon um, that you can already see pockets happening in the market that many companies will be actually repositioning themselves in saying that cybersecurity and seeing cybersecurity as a business enabler. Because mm-hmm. now we cannot anymore dismantle cybersecurity and business operations. Okay, can you linger there for a second? Because cybersecurity as a business enabler is an important topic on this podcast. I talk to a lot of CISOs who 
you know, they always stress to me, yes, my, my main priority is securing the assets and the infrastructure for the organization. But there's an add-on uh, component to my responsibilities, which is to represent the company as uh, uh, a legitimate player in cybersecurity, where, where my security posture and the strength of my security posture is a sales pitch, is the, an enabler of the business. You're starting to see that from your perch as a very, very real thing. And are there like gaps in that conversation that's, that that needs to be like, what can a CISO, what should CISOs be wrapping their heads around in terms of their role as keeper of the flame, enabler of the business? When you put a question like that, in at least in my head uh, and, you know, from my communication with CISOs and our community, it's kind of two sets of issues um, in positioning cybersecurity as a business enabler. Basically, what does it mean to you? When you say that, what does it mean? Translating that your business will be able to take more risks if they know that the cybersecurity stack is actually um, stable, uh, strong, resilient, um, and you mature and not necessarily that you need to spend every night overthinking where are the pain points and vulnerabilities are, but you can spend time actually identifying places where you can grow because you have this great foundation um, and you are uh, you know, able to take digitalization to another level, to actually right. profit from your technology stack and innovation that you are either buying or producing or innovating. We're starting to see this with like big vendors like Microsoft is a $10 billion cybersecurity company because they've established this years and track record of getting security right over the years after their own problems. But there are certain examples of big, big vendors who have figured out this business of cybersecurity and figured out how to not necessarily monetize because I don't want to paint it in some sort of, you know, corporate grab, but a way to let security speak, security the security conversation, your security posture stands up to scrutiny and becomes part of helping to establish yourself as a credible vendor in this space, right? That's the big, that's exactly. the big picture goal. Exactly. Exactly. And, and, and I think, I, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. No, 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 go ahead. I, I, I think, I think the, the, the further in, you know, in 2020s you're going to go, the more of that you will see. And I think at some point, at some point, now, I don't know when that will happen, but it's it will happen like when you are buying a car, you know, security is not necessarily, yes, you can think about Volvo um, or, or, you know, or German cars because, you know, they will be, you know, safety in them might be higher than in other brands. But you do not necessarily think that I will buy a car that will cause unsafety for me. Right. Now, if you think, you know, 100 years ago, uh, cars definitely were not developed or innovated or manufactured with security in mind. Right. Um, it had to be backported. The addition of seatbelts, the addition of even uh, brakes. airbags, brakes, all, all these safety me- mechanisms were added on, bolted on later on. And interestingly, exactly. over the years, car manufacturers were able to advertise security and safety as uh, 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 as, a as a differentiator from competitors, exactly. right? 
and you start to see, and you think you'll start to see that happening in cybersecurity and in tech where where yes. security becomes this differentiator. Yes, I, I definitely will. Because if you are a CISO or if you're a CEO even, and you know that by buying X product, you're a lot of headaches potentially, um, you know, are going away, then, you know, will you invest in something that then you will need to scrutinize and make sure that it's all secure and make sure that, you know, you understand bits and pieces of it, or you will be relying on, you know, a company, an organization that actually puts security forward. And, right. and I think that will definitely shift the market. And we all know market response to what customer wants. And, right, and that right. actually leads in, in uh, you know, in, in the question that you raised before, you know, what's the role of governments in influencing more secure innovation? And I think that, you know, the executive order, um, the recent executive order of the United States is, is a great example because every single government, it doesn't matter where, around the world, they have enormous buying power. You think that's you think the U.S. executive order and some of the some of the recommendations there around zero trust and multi-factor authentication and some of these foundational basic things will eventually filter out and uh, across geos and across industry? That's one question. Do you think that will have lasting effect? One and two, is there a worry that it adds a tax to folks trying to defend themselves? Because I feel like security is expensive. Good security is not cheap. And that's the reason we have a ransomware epidemic. We have hospitals and we have some sectors that just can't defend themselves. They don't have the resources, the staffing, the money. Good security is not cheap. And I feel like we're heading to that place now where there's that tax, right? And and, and it's out of balance. Is that something that can be addressed? Well, I think before thinking about security as a tax, then we also need to start considering, you know, this enormous race towards digitalization without even well, thinking of But that's how inevitable though, right? That's exactly, inevitable but, though, right? I mean, you mentioned COVID. COVID forced the digital transformation in places where folks had to run to the cloud when they were clearly not ready. And now we're scrambling to make sure cloud deployments are secure and properly configured yeah. and so on. So this digital transformation you mentioned is inevitable. I mean, you, you can't avoid it, right? So we're heading there anyway. So it, it, it you know, the, the digitalization was like a five, 10 year plan in many organizations. It happened in a couple of weeks. I'm pretty sure now there will be very similar race over security. You know, a lot of organizations went digital, not necessarily considering all the security measures they had to apply or they had to implement. And there's massive um, exposure to risk there then. And exactly. And now I think all of them or majority of them, and that would be my hope, are actually aware of, you know, hey, like guys, we need to get this serious. So, you know, let's consider our organizational security, but also let's consider our technological security, our product security. Um, and, and I think, you know, especially the product security part, to, you know, from algorithmic transparency to provenance of code, like the, the bill of software material, uh, material, bill of software materials. Software bill of materials, right. Yeah. Data protection, you know, privacy, security by design and default will become kind of a de facto uh, framework that we will be 
um, looking through that lens when acquiring new technologies or when actually innovating and developing those technologies. And you so, think the, the spending power of the purse, the government spending power will help to push and address this, right? Where, where, there, as, where there are economic incentives, you think that this is where all, all boats will float alongside it, right? Ryan, will I produce two products? Will I develop two different codes? One right. for, for government clients and one for private sector clients? Right, Not right. necessarily. It's kind of will be like the GDPR effect. Correct. You know? Yeah, that's the one that came to mind, the GDPR effect. Uh, and you mentioned SBOMs and Software Bill of Materials. Uh, again, how should, and, and is that something that you guys are paying attention to at the, at the center there, uh, this drive and, and, and what seems to be a looming requirement around every vendor needing to provide an ingredient list and, and properly document components of components and really add a level of transparency to things? Do you expect to see that filtering across the globe as well? Um, definitely. De definitely, that would be my observation. So. A um, couple of years ago, we gathered a um, working group consisting of investors um, like Blackrocks and Blackstones of the world, um, big financial players like Standards and Poor's, uh, Moody's, um, big banks, uh, technology you know, uh, providers like Salesforce, Fortinet, Palo Alto. And, and we said... If there was a framework that would allow either financial or strategic investors to actually evaluate companies on their organizational security and product security. So the, the innovation, how do we ensure that the innovation is developed in a responsible and a secure manner? And ESBOM was actually one of the core um, priorities that the community has emphasized. Um, as part of the algorithmic transparency and the provenance of code um, aspect in the framework, um, because there's because it's enforceable, right? Because all the others are feel like all the others feel like checkbox, checkbox, checkbox. I feel like exactly. with SBOM, it's largely enforceable. It's machine readable. There are these formats, and there's some. And I know Google is pushing this salsa framework, and there's new discussions around frameworks yep. that make everything talk to each other, make it enforceable. But without enforceability, we're just you know. Wasting time, right? Exactly. And, you know, it also depends to, to, to whom the startup or, or, or um, a newly developed company that is, uh, you know, pushing a tool in the market, to whom they are selling. A lot of private sector players are already requesting, you know, the whole bibliography and understanding of where your code comes from, you know, where, who developed it and et cetera, et cetera. I think now kind of framing it and, and putting it actually for the first time in history in the executive order gives it a completely new level of elevation for this mm -hmm. issue. Again, moves from just cybersecurity community that we've been talking about this for a long time to a much broader audience and is, is a tool now for executives to actually refer when they are taking business strategic decisions. Every time I listen to a conversation among uh, 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 .gov folks and policy folks and private sector folks for the last, I swear, I've been in this industry writing about security for 20 plus years, and I've been writing the same story for 20 years. We need to improve cooperation between public and private sector. We need to improve cooperation between public and private sector. Like I can yeah. just change the date and write the story. Your mission, your mission is to attempt to solve this. 
am I going to be writing the same story five years from now that we need to improve collaboration between public and private sector? Or do you feel like we're at this inflection point caused by ransomware, caused by a lot of the headlines, caused by a lot of the mainstream attention? Do you feel like we're at this tipping point or are we just grinding our gears and I might, I'm still going to be frustratingly talking about this crap for the next five years? Well, you sense my uh, frustration? Yes, yes, fully, fully, because I am, I am there with you. Because <laughs> you're, you're, you need to fix this for us. And, and oh well, no pressure there, Ryan. You know. Um, no, well, is listen, it getting better for real? There, there is never. Well, it, I think it's getting better, and I think a lot of organizations are getting definitely aware of how bad it is. And, you know, there is a saying, no, you need to reach the rock bottom to actually understand that you need to improve. Um, So did we reach the rock bottom? I'm not sure, but we definitely reached the level of awareness of like something got to be done. Something has to happen to actually enable um, cyber community to to step up and actually take actionable uh, steps towards better collaboration. Well, let me so, challenge you there, because sure, you, you're ahead. saying the awareness is high and, and now we're at this point now where something has to happen. Like, why now? People have been, they've been ransoming hospitals for the last three years. Hospitals where people have surgeries and hospitals have been paying million dollar ransoms just to stay in business, life or death for years. Like, why now? Why is it suddenly a top, top of issue, issue thing now? Because, you know, I think the last 18 months or so um, really elevated the issue of ransomware, actually ransom groups got so active um, and exploited the the weaknesses first of the, you know, COVID-19 crisis and all the unknowns surrounding that. And then moved into exploiting anything and everything that was potentially in technology and in people's behavior. Um, And I think the combination of this fast-paced digitalization and this increased criminal activity um, resulted that, you know, at least to our knowledge, and I'm sure that's limited, uh, more than $350 million were paid to, you know, different ransom um, attacks to be resolved. Um, and I think at some point, when it's hitting to economic damage and the physical security or stability, rather, you know, people are standing um, in front of gas stations and lines overnight because they do not know if they will be able to refill gas to go to work tomorrow. Like suddenly, that's very visible. If you are country's leader, if you are a corporate leader, you definitely take a very different uh, weight um, in on this issue than when it was, you know, ransom request for five hundred dollars. First of all, ransoms got much more expensive. So right, right. you know, like you cannot compare ransoms from ten years ago to today's. Um, and I think also the insurance policies um, are changing already. What we are seeing and will be changing. So soon, most probably ransomware um, and the ransom payment will not be covered anymore by the insurance. So you suddenly... Or maybe illegal or maybe completely... uh, Might uh, Governments maybe add some strict regulations around ransomware payments and so on. So there's going to be some major disruption happening there. But again, I, I can't help 
but be more frustrated about the fact that for three years they've been ransoming hospitals. Yeah. Hospitals. Yeah. I mean, Schools. what worse than how harder yeah. can you get than actual hospitals? And we sat back and said, yeah, it's a ransomware thing. But, you know, now with solar winds and colonial pipeline, and we're starting to see really, really big organizations feel the heat and get really, really burned and hurt by some infections, it's top of mind issue. And and and, it, and this is a good thing. But again, I feel like, and, and, and I want to close with the, my last question around understanding future networks and technology. You mentioned 5G and quantum and some of the futuristic things you guys want to get ahead of. I feel like we were ahead of ransomware five years ago telling people, listen, get on top of this, get on top of this. And here we are. And now here we are. We're talking about 5G and quantum and some of the futuristic threats coming down the pike. You know, everything everything will be an intelligent edge IoT device with all kinds of computing power on it. And we're spending a lot of time now saying, hey, there's a world of hurt coming there. There's a world of security problems coming there. Are we repeating the same mistakes? Are, are, are you, are, are you going to fix this? Are we ever going to fix this? Well, what do they say? The, the smart ones learn from others' mistakes. And, you know, the less smart ones actually make their own. And um, in many cases, right, but, sometimes but in I tech, like- right? But in tech, there is no less smart and more smart, right? We are all players in the ecosystem. Like if I'm a weak link in the chain, then you're a weak link in the chain. If, I'm, exactly. if, if, if my network can be used to do lateral movement to a, a, attack your network, then we are all part of this ecosystem, right? So, and this is why the security tax becomes an important part of the conversation because mm-hmm. if, if if security is unaffordable for the majority of us yeah and we're all part of this intertwined interconnected ecosystem then it doesn't help anyone definitely actually the last session we held with a cyber leadership community um we had part of the group focusing on specifically what you just said the ecosystem approach so so the actual question was which uh, you know not necessarily every CISO um, thinks about on daily basis, but it's a really important part of their job, is how do you ensure and how do you influence external and internal stakeholders to foster industry-level um, cyber ecosystem? So how do you ensure regional or national, but you know, um, across industry lines? Because as you said, we are only as secure as the weakest link. If somebody can penetrate the weakest link, they're going to get into whatever network they want to. And I think it's, you know, we can also not look into cybersecurity as like, we have a finish line. Like, you know, if we do this by this date, we're all good and we all can retire. It's our cybersecurity actually does not have an end goal. There is no finish line. It's a marathon and it will continue evolving as we are introducing new technologies, as the hacking community, you know, the black hats will be applying new technologies to to find, you know, much quicker weaknesses and to automate their attacks even faster than they are. So we on continuous basis, like that's, I think that's the beauty of CISO's work is you observe, you revisit, you improve, you adapt, you change, you know, you apply new technologies. And and I think that's why if anyone that has critical thinking, problem-solving abilities, creativity in them, it's an amazing field to grow to. Because I don't think these challenges will become boring anytime soon. 
it's right. with everything that we are introducing is just going to get more complex, more interesting. And the technical capabilities um, of a CISO will be as important as let's call them soft skills, communication skills, persuasion, negotiation, because you have to be the ambassador of cyber and you are the main salesperson of cyber within your organization and within the ecosystem. Let right. it be in communication with policymakers or with other cybersecurity leaders, board of directors, board members, executives, and your peers in the organization, your other staff that every day need to play a role in protecting it. So it's the more CISOs we can call up into, you know, contributing to this international cooperation, and the more we can involve them in, in, in this public-private partnership, the better and more satisfied, you know, I would be as Algerde, and I'm sure the center and the forum as a, as a unit. Uh, when you when you've been writing and observing this industry for as long as I have, you get very jaded, and it's easy to be pessimistic about the future. Having heard these warnings over the years, see it come to pass, and we kind of repeat the same things. So I think, like you know, some of the work you do about bridging these gaps is among the most important work we can do in this industry. So just to wrap up, and just so you can go out and enjoy the sunshine of Geneva. What is next for the center? Like, what are you focused on? What are some projects coming up? How can we, how can CISOs participate, help people understand where they can find you and, 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 and what are uh, some things you're up to? Of course. Um, well, we are, you know, our, our most uh, collaborative and focused on public-private partnership project is Partnership Against Cybercrime. And that's actually, you know, across board, it's, it's very regionally diverse. Uh, it involves public and private um, leaders, you know, from diverse set of portfolio um, organizations. Um, and, and there we have really impactful conversations and then tools and frameworks on how to tackle the cybercrime, you know, epidemic, let's call it. Um, we are about to launch a quantum work which will focus on the whole quantum economy but with you know with quite a big pillar on security and what does it mean to the future of security the future of encryption and beyond um, we are working on developing a benchmark mechanism for business leaders to actually be able to understand how their company kind of scores across their industry Okay, and and that's a pain point that I have heard from many business leaders. Don't tell me what the big boys are doing, because that's not my budgets, that's not my resources, that's not my timeline. Tell me how Joe, my neighbor, or Monica next door, how they are preparing and responding on cyber, so that I know: am I overspending because you don't want to do that, or underspending? Those, right. those are my decisions and my pain points as a, as a business leader. And that's the metrics that I need from cyber community. So we have a lot of exciting work coming. We, you know, everyone can find us under the World Economic Forum Center for Cybersecurity. Feel free to reach out. Um, there's definitely always, you know, we are for, for, for lookout for bright and energetic uh, people to join us and, 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 and work together with us. And Ryan, never be pessimistic. We cannot, we cannot get tired in this because hackers I, are not getting tired. 
No, I agree. It's 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 not pessimism as much as just being jaded um, at the fact that we continue to repeat the same mistakes over and over. And every time we feel like there's a, a sense of momentum, something comes and and, mm-hmm. and flits it along. So I, I'm a big I'm a big proponent for these conversations. I'm a big proponent for the work you're doing. In fact, my podcast is a lot of just try trying to initiate conversations among peers and practitioners. So, uh, you know, from that standpoint, I applaud the work you guys are doing. I, I look forward to seeing all the projects coming out of the World Economic Forum Center for Cybersecurity there. Um, welcome, come back to the podcast. Anytime you feel like you have something important to say, you're always welcome to come back. And hopefully I'll see you at Black Hat. Hopefully. Fingers crossed. Thank you, Algerdi. Thanks a lot. <laughs> Thank you so much, Ryan. <laughs>